Yo, this is Hal in Philly. How's it going? And I want to welcome you to my podcast. Tales of the Road Warriors! This is the first full-length interview of 2020, and my guest is Cowboy Mock Bell. Since this is a longish episode, longish, I'll give just a brief rundown about who I'm talking to, and the rest you'll discover during our conversation. During the early days of Aerosmith, yes, that Aerosmith, Joe Perry, their notorious and much-adored lead guitarist and Steve Tyler's right-hand man, left the band to start his own band, The Joe Perry Project. He put out three solo albums, each with a different lead singer, before ultimately and inevitably rejoining Aerosmith and taking his place once again alongside Steve Tyler. The lead singer on the third Joe Perry Project album, containing the title song Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, is my guest on today's episode, Cowboy Mock Bell. By the way, Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, A Diary, is also the name of Mock's book, based on a journal he kept during his old Road Warrior days with the band. You'll find a link on the show notes page to Mock's website where you can get yourself a copy of Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, A Diary as well as links to some videos of his earlier live performances with the Joe Perry Project, and also with his first band called Thunder Train. That's all you really need to know going in, so let's join the conversation already in progress. I I often say I'm from Boston, even though I'm 20 miles south of Boston. And I never was born in Boston or anything. It was just a town that kind of that uh, adopted me first. Although, you know, I did this gig down in uh, Florida a couple years ago at a stadium, uh, JetBlue Park. I was opening up for a Red Sox game, and I said, hey, I'm Mark Bell from Natick, Massachusetts. And I got a big cheer, you know. (laughs) People liked that I was saying I was from a little town because everybody had either uh, driven through Natick and gone to the mall there, or they knew Doug Flutie was from Natick or something. So it was funny. You never know. Sometimes the little town thing can work for you. It's funny you mentioned Doug Flutie. I, I'm not really a sports fan, but I do remember like uh, being in a bar and just people going, Flutie! Flutie! <laughs> Flutie! I know. It was all, he had a funny name. Yeah, and then it ended up being Flutie Flakes and everything around here. He became... I mean, he's still a... He's, a, he's an icon because of this one pass that he threw, the Hail Mary pass at the end of some game that you know went across the whole field and somebody caught it and won the game. Are you, you know, a, are you a sports fan? Not really. I'm a fair weather fan of teams when they start doing really good after after like the Patriots won their third Super Bowl. I said I should probably start watching this because this doesn't happen very often. And so I started watching. It was like watching a superhero thing. Yeah. And yeah. I also I was, I'm like that with the Red Sox too. If the, if they're having a good year, I'll jump on the bandwagon. I don't know anything about the stats. Any real sports guy. If I start talking to him, after a few sentences, he shuts down because he knows he's not talking to an actual sports guy when he talks to me. Yeah, I, I can't even wear an Eagles, you know, like an Eagles or a Phillies cap because people start talking sports to me. <laughs> like within two seconds, they realize I'm, I'm a complete sports idiot. Yeah, I don't really. You know, I'll sit there. You know, I, I like a baseball game. It's an excuse to take a nap from the second inning to the seventh inning and then see if we're ahead or not and go back to sleep or whatever. 
was a rocker. And back when I was a kid, the jocks were the kings of the high school. And being a rock guy put you outside of that whole circle. And it was kind of... Believe a, me, I know. But you know, a few years after that, then they started having the rocks versus the jocks softball teams. And this whole, you know, where radio stations would play against guys in the band. And and there was a whole bunch of band guys. My drummer in one of my band, you know, he, he was a good baseball player. So there was a different kind of musician who could do both, you know, like John Fogarty put me in coach. Um, right. <laughs> but that definitely wasn't me and, and most of my buddies. It wasn't just that we didn't have the sports gene. It was just a whole different mindset. I used to play in the school band too, until I realized that I was really being funneled into just being the background music for the sports pep rallies and, and playing the school fight song. And uh, the whole music department was also geared towards the jock mentality and building that thing up. So, Believe me, Just the other night, well, well, Christmas Eve, I played a party Christmas Eve, and they wanted me to play the Eagles, Fly Eagles Fly. <laughs> I don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. No, I'm not about to sing uh, that uh, Neil Diamond uh, war song. Uh, Car uh, Sweet Caroline? Uh, Sweet Caroline. Actually, that one I do. If they ask yeah, me right. to play, I usually end a gig with that one, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a great audience pleaser. I mean, they've sapped it all up with all this. Yeah, I know some sappy call stuff. Call and response, you know. But that's, I, that's, I, grew, I grew up with, uh, there was a band that used to rehearse in the backyard behind me, and they used to play a whole lot of Love and Spoonful songs. Mm, that's kind of was my indoctrination into, you know, classic rock. Well, that's a good way to get into it through Love and Spoonful. That's great stuff. And, and I mean, the Neil, my Neil Diamond picks are more like uh, Solitary Man and Cherry Cherry and uh, the Monkeys tunes that he wrote and all that stuff. I'm all on board with that. Speaking uh, Sweet of Cherry Caroline. Cherry, because uh, uh, I was looking at stuff on, on YouTube, you know, trying to find stuff about you, and I, I came across um, Warrant somehow. I stumbled on Warrant and you know, they had to hit, what, what was it, Cherry Pie? Or oh, yeah, uh-huh. And uh, those guys, I, I was a bartender working Sunday mornings. Uh, it was a Brownbackers bar. So all of the guys from Warrant used to come in on Sunday mornings to watch the games. And Janie Lane from Warrant, did you ever cross paths with those guys? They were after, they, they were after me, really. See, I rocked throughout the 70s with Thunder Train, which was a hard rock kind of Stones, Alice Cooper, Mott the Hoople thing. And then... I thought my shot was over when I was 29, and then, then Joe Perry's management called, and I ended up in that band after, you know, it was totally a surprise. I was, I, I had uh, given up my dreams, and then my dreams were resurrected all of a sudden when I got this call. Uh, but we were in the very early 80s. We were just, we were in a tough socket between uh, all the big bands like Led Zeppelin had broken up and, and Aerosmith had lost Joe Perry and uh, the whole Ted Nugent, uh, Ozzy Osbourne kind of kiss had suddenly been supplanted by the new wave, bands like the Cars, bands like Elvis Costello, bands like the Police. The only hard rock band that was really kicking ass at that point was uh, David Lee Roth's group, but even they were having to cover 
Roy Orbison and Dancing in the Streets and tunes like that to get on the radio in the early 80s. Then it was really right when, when the Joe Perry Project ended in 84, all of a sudden this whole new scene with bands like Quiet Riot and uh, Motley Crue and then Warrant and then uh, Guns N' Roses, that all came up right behind us. I mean, if we could have <laughs> hung in there for a little bit longer, we would have enjoyed a, a resurgence of rock although we were more of a rock and roll band and those guys were a little more of a heavy metal and the hair band thing but we could you know we could um uh, cross into that enough of course aerosmith got back together and they enjoyed that whole thing because they were kind of the godfathers they were the band that guys in crew and uh, warrant had listened to when they were growing up and so suddenly aerosmith was back and they were the godfathers of the whole scene we're talking to Cowboy Mock Bell. This is Hal in Philly, and uh, I'm super happy to uh, be here, Hal. And uh, I just got back from California, and I'm pretty sure that somebody that I met on the beach asked me if I'd heard your show, and uh, because we were talking about some rock, and uh, I'm pretty sure somebody tipped me to it, but I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was because I met a few, met up with a few of my rock buddies. I was out there for the holidays. However it was, uh, when I heard Tales of the Road Warriors, I said, man, that's me. That's I got me. Tales, and I'm a road warrior for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Did it, what beach were you on? Do you remember uh, where you were? Oh, yeah. We're lucky to, to rent a place looks right out over Broad Beach, and uh, as well as Zuma Beach, and all the way down to Point Doom and Westward Beach. So we were up in, in Trancas Canyon, part of Malibu, looking down at the... Uh, you know, the northern uh, or far western uh, beaches of Malibu. Fantastic spot. Oh, yeah. But don't get the idea, <laughs> don't get any ideas that I'm a, a money bags guy or anything. That's No, no, no. Some, but I, I, have friends, I have friends up there, so it could have been anybody. It might have, ran, it might have been somebody I know, for, for all I know, a mutual friend. Uh, I ran into Tony Dow, who used to play... Um, Wally Cleaver. Wally Leave it to Beaver. He came into yeah. a bar I was working one night. Sat at the bar. I'm like, Wally. <laughs> Very nice guy. Um, ran into Mark Ferrari, who used to play with the hard rock band Keel, and he was in the Wayne's World movies. Yeah. Uh, drummer named Mark Morrow I ran into, who now runs a uh, Hollywood tour company great drummer i don't know i mean one of these guys dropped the name the tales of the road warriors and told me i should check it out so well, i'm glad anyway. you did yeah thanks hal you started on cello i read yeah i, I did and i wish i could tell you it was because of some lofty uh because it's the greatest sounding instrument in the orchestra <laughs> and uh you know it, it is strings i like to think that i was always attracted to the strings but you know what it really was i don't know if you're familiar with the instrument but it was the uh down at the bottom you you loosen this thumb screw thing and this end point comes swooshing out of the instrument right the uh, tailpiece that that uh digs into the carpet when you play and i was fascinated with this uh uh bayonet flumes out of the instrument I had an uncle that played, or a cousin that played cello with the NBC Orchestra out in California, and uh, he let me mess around with his, and that's where I, anyway, I played that for four years and enjoyed that, but then the uh, rock and roll thing bit me at, 
you know, as I turned 12, 13 years old, and that was also the time when the Beatles and the British invasion and uh, a whole lot of things were happening. I loved the sound of the fuzz tone. I loved those garage rock sounds. Yeah. And um, so I, I, yeah, I was very I, embarrassed. I went pretty ape over the, the wah-wah pedal. When I first heard Wheels of Fire, the, the mm. Queen, I started with that one, then I went back to their first couple of albums. But Eric Clapton and that wah-wah just did it for me. Definitely. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was. I remember when I first heard that developed, and and I got an early knockoff one. Um, first band I ever saw was the Jimi Hendrix Experience when I was fifteen, and Jimmy Jimmy only used a couple of things on stage: a fuzz tone and a wah wah pedal. He didn't yeah. need much more, but he he also had. Uh, he was in the studio. He was able to use that board as an instrument because <laughs> his production yeah. uh, ability was without equal absolutely and and, i mean that guy was i'm not taking anything away from his guitar playing but yeah his production his songwriting and his singing he's one of the greatest rock singers in the world but where do you ever see in the list of the 10 greatest singers do they even mention hendrix people fall over themselves talking about his guitar never even mention because imagine i don't care he could bring in paul rogers or Pavarotti to sing uh, uh, Foxy Lady or Purple Haze or Crosstown Traffic. Who's going to sing it better than Jimi Hendrix? Nobody. He's the total package. And his showmanship. That's another thing. I'll admit it. Some people don't dig the showmanship stuff. I'm totally a showman. I'm into that. And I loved Jimmy's show. I loved how he just oozed that charisma. And, uh, you know, they say that Bill Graham told Jimmy in the second... Uh, um, set, you know, lay off all that rolling around the stage and burning your guitar. Just play, man. Just stand there and play. All right. But man, I saw his show. What a damn show. Great show. And he could play the guitar at the same time. So why tell him to stop? You know, <laughs> he was hilarious. He'd, he'd finish the solo and then pull out, pull a handkerchief out of his back pocket and wipe his brow. But the handkerchief had the Confederate flag printed on it. And he's wiping the sweat off his face. Just a funny, he had a great sense of humor. Did you ever see the movie Rainbow Bridge? Uh, yeah, I've seen it years ago. Yeah, I barely remember. I, mean, I saw it twice, but I, I do remember just being, you know, becoming a total Hendrix fan from, from the movie Rainbow Bridge. So anyway, Thunder Train was your first band? Yeah, I was more of a rock and roller. I listen to your show all the time. Yeah, and I know... A lot of the road warriors you talk to are, are everything from buskers to monkeys to uh, <laughs> guys that played with Paul McCartney to guys that play cello or, or, or do house parties with just an acoustic guitar. I feel an affinity with all those people. My particular thing was started out as garage rock. In the early 70s, I got into kind of a glitter rock thing and met up with four other guys that wanted to play real loud, put on a big show, real high energy. And that became Thunder Train. We were outside of Massachusetts, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, we were playing all over New England. Over a couple of years, we were getting a, a good fan base and had a truck and a crew, and we would put on as you know, put on a big Rolling Stones type show on the shoestring of you know, only getting paid a couple hundred dollars a night or whatever. 
but we'd work a lot. And then by the time it was like 1977 and the whole punk rock thing came in, we played all our own original material. We weren't really punk rockers. We were good old-fashioned American rock and roll band. But, yeah, but we did have a lot, a lot of, of confusion for a while between just regular rock and punk rock. And I don't know if you listened to the Ken Queter uh, conversation I had. I didn't hear that, but I will. Oh, uh, listen to Ken Queter when you get a chance, because he goes into that. He he was he was pretty put off by the punk scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I, I talked to some guys, and they're like, you know, they couldn't play, and you know, and we could play, and and blah blah blah. Well, I don't know. I guess, like I was saying with the showmanship, it goes a little deeper with me. If you're able to entertain a crowd and rock a crowd, I don't really care whether you're just buzzsawing through power chords or whether you're playing like Johnny Winter. Were you influenced at all by David Lee Roth? Roth came along when I was pretty far into Thunder Train. You know, so you I don't know whether pa- paralleled each other then. Yeah, really... he might have been. He might have been more influenced by me than I was by him. <laughs> I'm not sure because because he 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 was up in Massachusetts for a while too. And one of our our big hit song in Thunder Train was called Hot for Teacher. We released it in 76. Oh. <laughs> and uh, we did send it to David Lee Roth's band. And they did hire us to open for them a gig in Ohio, which they never ended up making the gig. But if any of the people listening to the show are rock fans, they know the song called Hot for Teacher was uh, uh, released by uh, Van Halen in 1984. Um it's kind of weird. Yeah, well, I listened to I listened to your song "Hot for Teacher." It's two different songs, and, and they Absolutely. say you can't copyright a title, so yeah, it just right. pretty much sounds like he liked your title. Yeah, who wouldn't like that? Took it and ran my with lead, it. <laughs> my lead singer came up with it. Anyway, Thunder Train had a uh, had its day. We we released our own albums, and and we were you know a little sensation up in. New England and the Northeast played, you know, all the CBGB's Maxes played with all these, you know, the Runaways and uh, Mink Deville and uh, Thin Lizzy, all these groups. But after six years, um, we didn't get the big deal that we were looking for. This is back in the old model of the of the record industry when a band like mine would be looking for that big deal and get. Uh, in advance and all that glory or whatever was supposed to be attached to it. So anyway, um, all we did was get rejected. You know, it was, it hurt. It was really hard. And I got to a point when I was 29 years old where I kind of gave up on my dream, which, you know, was, was pretty crushing. I, I just figured I'd had my shot. It wasn't happening. I thought maybe I should just try to get a job where I could get some medical coverage and take care of my rotten teeth and my right. falling apart body from all the flying knee drops I'd been doing and um, <laughs> hang up the axe and the... hang up the axe and and just because as you know how it's a big sacrifice when you become a road warrior you know every all your friends are settling down and maybe having a kid getting ahead in their job maybe even buying a house. When it comes, to, you got to really make a conscious decision about that because when you go to get a, what you know what they call a real job, and they interview you, and you mention that you you know you're a musician, the guy interviewing you thinks, oh no, he's going to want to take you know he's going to want to take days off, and they consider that when they when they're hiring or I should say not hiring, so so it's like because yeah. it, it, that becomes an issue. 
definitely. So you got to be willing to sacrifice being able to get a real job just because you're a musician. Yeah, and they want to know what have you been, you know, you walk in and you're 29, 30 years old, what have you been doing? And if you tell them the truth that you've been doing one-nighters all over the place, yeah, um, they're not sure about you. Anyway, cut to the chase. I got, I was lucky for me, my, my dad had an audio store as well. My, my grandfather had started back in 1929. My dad was selling stereo equipment. I got a job downstairs fixing broken gear and uh this phone call out of the blue comes in from the management company in in boston who i worked for a couple of times they just signed this cat named joe perry now i don't know if your listeners are familiar with joe but he had left this band called aerosmith he was yeah, lead, I think they <laughs> lead guitarist you know he'd written songs like walk this way and back back in the saddle and rocks toys in the attic he was you know along with kiss he was one of the aerosmith his band was one of the biggest uh things in in the 70s for for the younger kids i mean guys more my age had moved on probably after woodstock into jackson brown and the eagles and maybe some softer sounds but for the kids aerosmith and kiss was what they were listening to anyhow this cat joe perry is looking for a lead singer and the manager is sure that you're the guy for the job, Mark. Come on down. We're going to audition you. It freaked me out. I was not expecting this call. And in fact, I turned him down flat. And uh, then I, after I turned him down flat, I started thinking, what did you just do? At first, I, I, at first I did thought... You you did you originally kind of see yourself as, as a guitarist rather than a lead singer? I know for me, it's hard for me to sing without holding something in my hands, not just a mic, but I have to have an instrument. It's just, it's just yeah. Yeah. Um, that wasn't my, that, that's definitely, I get that because what? I started out as a lead guitarist. I sang under protest. And then in my, you know, earlier days before Thunder Train, I had been scouted while I was singing. This kid, this drummer said, come and try out with my band or he didn't say try out, come, please join my band. Leave your guitar at home. I already have a great guitarist. I just want you to sing. I was like, what? Just sing? You know, I'm no singer. Um, he says, oh, I don't, he said, I'm not just looking for some guy who warbles out there. I'm looking for a guy that knows how to connect with a crowd and talks the way you do and moves the way you do and, and do whatever it is you just did. And I was like <laughs> totally blown away. I, I have to admit, inside, I'd always thought, you know, I, I could go out and do a little Mick Jagger, but I wasn't about to go out and do it and make a fool of myself. But this one kid, he had this faith in me, and uh, all it takes is one person to really be behind you. Was the kid then, like a booker or, or the, ma the road manager he was, for Joe? He was, uh, this is back, this is a, a drummer named Bobby Edwards that was the guy that scouted me. Mm -hmm. He was a couple years younger than me. He just said, oh, I see what you're going to do. And it has nothing to do with that guitar. Guitar stir dime a dozen. I want you to come and sing with my band. So I left the guitar at home, and I and I sang. This this is ten years early. This is like when I was nineteen years old. So the whole Thunder Train deal I just told you about. I was just a lead singer, and and so I was known in Boston as a lead singer. You know, there's Peter Wolf, there's Steven Tyler, yeah. There's eight other guys. I was one of those eight other guys. 
How long were you doing it with Thundertramp? How long were you guys? Uh, six years. Wow, that's a good run. Yeah, it was long and long enough that you know, band, uh, I our records were going right up to like Atlantic, and we were meeting with all these Bob Fiden at Arista. We were meeting, meeting and and being really seriously considered, and then being rejected. It was painful, man, and that was why I said no to the when I got the call to to audition with Joe, I said, I have been rejected enough. And all I could think of was now I'm going to have to trot down to some cold rehearsal hall with a bunch of guys smoking cigars, looking me over while I sing a Joe Joe Perry song and uh, audition. And I just said, no. But then after I hung up the phone, I said, what did you just do? Man, you know, you can be jetting around the world playing headline gigs, you know, not just playing the Boston area, you'll be playing all over, all over the place. And then I was kicking myself over in the corner and ruining the day that I'd got said no to the call. And that's when the phone rang again. And the so manager, opportunity does knock more than once. <laughs> yeah. And it does. And I've <laughs> been, I'd been banging my head against every door in New York, trying to get a deal for the last six years. And nobody would do a damn thing. And now when I totally gave up on myself and was fixing needles in kids' record players, that's when I get the call to join Joe Perry and go models, jets, open bars, Yahoo! <laughs> it was, <laughs> if you're listening to the show, don't do what Cowboy Mock Bell did and, and, and give up on yourself and expect David Lee Roth and his band to, to suddenly hire you. But, you know, for me, that's what went down and it was totally bizarre. And a week later, I was a member of the Joe Perry project and I started keeping a diary from I'd always kept date books like a lot of like a lot of musicians I mean at least you're keeping the record of where you got to play Friday night and maybe how much they paid you or who's on your guest list and but, also based on your lifestyle you know if you don't write it down you'll never remember it <laughs> yeah but you know I knew this was something I, out of the ordinary and I was lucky to begin this second wind and so I, I did keep a pretty detailed journal of of every step of the way from then on and and that's what this new book that i just published is once a rocker always a rocker it starts with that phone call i just told you about and then it proceeds and uh it's a road warrior's diary it's kind of interesting because now you you don't strike me as like a really hard partier or drinker drug drug user so yeah. So, did you go through which, a period of that at all, or, or were you pretty good about getting your? Yeah. Your... They always gave me a hard time because I'm kind of, I'm kind of a lightweight. It turned out to be a good thing because even though this was a high point of my career, getting to join this guy that had had all these hit records and had been, you know, Columbia's biggest selling artist. Now he was in the dumps and on the way down and his, and his health wasn't good. Joe Perry, if if you know about him, yeah, it's no secret. You know, he, he was one of the toxic twins, he, he and Steven Tyler and, uh, Joe was in bad shape. Um, and that's one of the reasons maybe why they wanted me to be in the band. They knew that I wasn't a druggie and I wasn't the kind of guy that was going to bring Joe down the wrong path. If anything, I was going to try to do anything I could to, to keep his mind on the music and uh, and keep things in a positive flow. And so that's what I did. But I'll tell you, we weren't that many months into the project 
we were just on the eve of our first big coast to coast tour when Joe had a terrible collapse on like the fifth or sixth night of our of our tour in North Carolina where he, he had a seizure right on stage in front of a huge crowd of uh, mostly Marines. We were just uh, outside of Camp Lejeune. Um, you were doing a base? Yep. And Joe had a seizure and fell fell um, on his back in the middle of the stage in the fourth song. And uh, mm. our drummer... What, what year off. was that? Was that like 83? That's 82. 82. Okay. 82. I'd been in the band for... Well, I joined in February, and this was May. You know, we'd, we'd done a bunch of gigs around our, our base, Boston, and now this is our first time moving out, and that happened. So it was really scary and ended up with us being off the road for six or eight weeks after that. I keep It's all in the diary because I talk about I – was, I was with Joe through his um, – dry out and recovery. He had a lot of things going on. I mean, for all that he had done so much more in his career than me, it's a weird thing. He signed all these contracts where he owed a lot of records. Uh, he had owed to management that he couldn't get away from that weren't helping him. He was stuck in a marriage that wasn't good for him. He had gone through all his money, but he, you know, he still had this big mansion and all these sports cars and he just had a kid. He had all this stuff that was really pulling him down. So, I mean, I was, I was broke, but Joe was so below being broke. You know, I, I was, he was broke, broke and, and broken. Yeah. I mean, he'd have to come up with millions of bucks just to be broke. Then he'd be, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm at <laughs> zero. He was, he was in, yeah, it was intense, but you know what? He came back out of that sharp, and then we took off, and then, then it really took off. We were we uh, were able to not only play all over the states. We went down to Venezuela, had an incredible time playing like twenty thousand seat uh, arena down there. Uh, what uh, what's Venezuela like? Uh, we were brought down there by a bunch of of luxury auto dealers from Miami and Caracas. Venezuela who got together and promoted this thing and they kind of circled us we each, I mean we we went from here in the states we toured the same way the road warriors that I hear on your show tour you know either in their own car going to the gig in our case we had a little van and we had our our gear in a 14 foot rider truck and there was nine of us on the road the four guys in the band and, and four or five guys on the crew did you rent when these we in venezuela or did you drive them from the united states uh, all the way down into south america well uh, when we went to south america <laughs> we were given first class tickets and we flew out of jfk and we were met and with each of us had our own personal luxury car with a driver and they put on the radio and there's one station Back then, anyway, in 82, the state-run Radio Capital was playing Joe Perry music 24 hours a day, nothing else. And not just Aerosmith music, the stuff off the first two Joe Perry Project albums as well, constant. And over the streets were these, like um, Matador would have with these uh, buntings and you know pictures of Joe Perry and welcome we were the project down there. So, so the, the Venezuela media was like really, really uh, setting set the anticipation high. Oh, 
it was crazy. The first night there, we met the media with the press all around them. We were doing that, and that broke into this disco party, and I'm dancing with this beautiful, beautiful girl, the most beautiful woman I'd ever danced with, and, and she mentions to me that she's going to be on TV the next day. I didn't think twice of it. I was kind of drinking and happy, and the next morning, I'm in my hotel suite, and I'm waking up, and I turned on the TV to try to just to focus my head, and there is this beautiful woman, Marabella, on this show called Buenos Dias, Venezuela, it's the girl I was dancing with last night, and she's like. So the, she was like the like, like uh, the host. Yeah, of she's the Kelly Ripper, whatever the. She's their main person. I'm like, that's what was going on down there. And, I mean, it was so bizarre because a day earlier, we were you know looking, counting our change for cigarettes and and and, and driving in the stinky old van to some roadhouse in you know wherever someplace in rhode island and now i'm dancing with the biggest tv star and uh and then we're off to this twenty thousand seat poliedro where we played uh, and were received incredibly it gets bizarre from there but it's all in the diary well, don't skip the bizarre <laughs> part oh you want people to read it in the book <laughs> well it's uh, well it's a, i put it together good tease uh, my there. Story. good tease there well, cowboy well, I, I, it is It is a little, some of these stories I really wanted to tell, give them all that they're really worth. Because I've been telling these stories at the bar, you know, you and sure. I'd be sitting at the end of the bar and I'd be telling, hey, so tell me about when you were with Joe Perry. And I, right. I've been telling these stories, but this was my chance. Finally, after all these years, I mean, the, the agents in New York said, why'd you wait 40 years to tell a story? There's a bunch of reasons. Uh, you know, at first, you know, after getting out of a whirlwind like that, it took me a few years just to collect my thoughts. It was a, it was a crazy thing working with that guy. But then, it's not all ice cream and makeup. There's some hard, tough stories in the diary too. So, there was things I had to work work through, and it took a while to be able to to face it all and and get it all in the manuscript form. But uh, I think the worst tragedy that I had to deal with luckily happens early in the book. And it's what we just talked about where, where Joe was in, in such bad shape when I first joined the band, but then start to build from there. The only thing for us was we were doomed uh, by this Titanic rising up, this iceberg rising up name of Aerosmith, which was, <laughs> <laughs> which was what uh, Joe was destined to get back together with Steven Tyler. Eventually. I agree. When you see the two together, too, you even wonder why he left in the first place. They're, they're, just, they're like brothers. Yeah. You know, so, and I knew that. But as you can imagine, you know, if you have the shot to... to um, did you did you meet it, Steve Tyler? Have you... Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. Steven uh, came to see us as the Joe Perry Project. He was couldn't have been nicer to me. He was my neighbor here in, in Marshfield for quite a few years. He used to come here and uh, trick or treat with his little, his small kids. And anytime I see Stephen, he, he's wonderful. No, no, no bitter feelings. Um, good, good. I used to hitchhike across America when I was a kid because I'm a, I was a road warrior before I had a band. I, I used to just want to get out on the road. And one thing that was always weird was um, going into a uh, like a truck stop. Because I was, you know, we're talking 1969, I'm 16, I got ragged trousers, I got this long, bushy, blonde hair, you know, kind of rock 
rock and roll looking dude. I'd walk into a truck stop and I could see everybody looking at me, kind of like, you know, like an easy rider when they show those scenes where everybody's turning. Was there a freak show coming into town? What is this? So years later, when I was with the Joe Perry Project, one thing I used to love to do when we stopped at a truck stop, I'm bringing this up because it's something I didn't write about in the book, but, you know, this is just a little thing. Cool. But it always I liked. Anyway, so whenever we stopped at a truck stop, I used to always jump out of the van first and, and, and go into the truck stop. Now I'd be, you know, with my leather pants on and my bandana and my hair. You know, who's this guy supposed to be? face messed up from the night before with some mascara dripping down my cheek or something <laughs> really looking like a some kind of a freak and uh they're looking at me yeah. like <laughs> and the then makeup was weird back then uh been I mean, early we're used 80s to it now but it was novel then and so so uh, yeah. you know, no, david lee roth was wearing it <laughs> keith richards mick everybody was wearing it back then yeah. it would not it wasn't just uh kiss and uh alice cooper wearing makeup it was just a regular the early 80s which is when this was a really weird time for anybody that remembers. I mean, if you go back and look at your pictures from 1982 or 83 and look at what you were wearing with your short shorts and your, uh, whatever, you know, it's pretty shocking. Then wearing eyeliner in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so anyway, so I'd go strolling into the place. Everybody's looking at me like they want to kill me. And then in comes our bass player. It was a big black guy. He's pretty tough looking, you know, with his camouflage and missing a front tooth. And he's got our lighting director next to him, who's a one-armed guy who really looks like a pirate, followed by <laughs> Joe Perry and the, and the road manager with his Halliburton case. You know, Joe's always looking like the coolest rock star in the world, uh, followed by our drummer, who was, looked like Thor. He was this big, huge blonde guy who could crush six truck drivers with a glance. And then the rest of the road crew, you know, one of them was a, a Marine um, vet. He'd always, you know, be dressed still with his Marine hat and pants. And anyway, this whole parade of guys who looked just as freaky as me, if not twice as freaky, and that would just shut the whole place up and go back to their <laughs> pancakes. Nobody was going to say anything. And we'd take the big 10-seat ten, ten table in the middle of the place and just, that uh, was kind of fun. Freaks rule. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There was uh, uh, one night, I'm, I'm destined to talk about this one, one day anyway, but it was one night when I was a singing waiter, and uh, Michael Winslow, the yeah. uh, black comic that does mm-hmm. these crazy sound effects. Oh, yeah, he, right. He, he was in Police Academy. From the Police, like, police Academy, yeah. yeah. So, so Michael was the host at the, at the restaurant. And he, so he would lead people to their tables with wow. menus in hand, making weird noises. And so one, <laughs> one night, we're a bunch of us went to Dupar's, and it like it was three in the morning. We were there from like three to five in the morning, and yeah. Michael was like, was like it was on stage, and everybody in the restaurant was like looking at our table and just laughing their asses off. I bet. I, I mean, I couldn't recall a single. Line, he said it was just mostly him doing sound effects. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but he got, you know, he's like one of those guys who just gets everybody's attention. Oh, yeah. He was the so, best thing in those places. Yeah. So I know, me. like, I can relate to what you're talking about. Like, your freak show walking in there <laughs> and your your, ba- your band is as culturally diverse as anything you've ever seen. And then you with your, your bushy, bushy blonde hairdo all up yeah. and full of sweat and, and yeah. matted. 
<laughs> and that yeah. and the, and the uh, what your uh, your eyeliner and makeup all <laughs> runny on on your face. Yeah, it was you just fun to, even to walk in yourself. first all by myself and have everybody ready to pounce, and then the cavalry comes in behind me. Yeah, <laughs> so they save save, but yeah, so so <laughs> so they didn't realize that you were with anybody. You know, oh no, they were about no, ready just to, like yeah. That like, is fun. Weirdo. And then I was like, nah, then they had to think again after the, the, the band walked him behind you. <laughs> we looked like the Mad Max Road Warriors from that movie Road Warriors. Oh, yeah, because yeah, you came rolling like. up in the <laughs> <laughs> That's what it looked like. We always we always uh, thought of ourselves more as pirates in a pirate ship. But, yeah, we were uh, probably closer to, to the Road Warriors in the Mad Max. I was going to ask you, well, you, you finished, and I was just going to ask you if you, besides the Venezuela and all, did, did you go, guys do Europe? Did you, did you fly overseas any, or stick mostly to the uh, U.S. Uh, touring? Yeah, well, funny you say, we, it was mostly U.S. and, and uh, up in Canada, we were up there a lot, too. And then, then, you know, after over a year and a half, we finally were able to sign a record deal. Because besides, uh, when I joined the band, besides Joe's health going down and all that, he'd also lost his uh, his manager, who was Don Law, who's like the most powerful booking agent in the Northeast, and is the head of Live Nation now, and he's like... So he was more than just an agent. He was a person who was really powerful in the industry. He had he'd stepped away from Joe because of Joe's condition at that time, probably. Joe had lost his band prior to the one that we put together when I joined the band. Joe had uh, lost his record label, Columbia. He was totally in the dumps uh, when I joined the band. We built it up. We were playing all these... We played constantly. And then we finally signed a deal finally put out a record thank goodness for me because up until then i was basically having to be like a cover band singer i was singing steven tyler songs i was singing songs that the other two singers on the first two joe perry projects had done and my voice is my voice is nothing like any of those guys i'm not a cover band singer i have a real rough so <laughs> my voice finally again i'm trying to think of the word gravel you have like, like a gravel like a growl and a gravelly kind of delivery. yeah right Exactly. It's more like the guy from the Dolls or, or Mont- Ian Hunter or, or a guy from Slade or Great something. Great voice, nevertheless. It's good rock voice, but it just didn't fit the Steven Tyler songs and the other stuff I was having to sing every night. And that's pretty rough as a singer to go out, you know, because we're doing these big shows and kids are coming. They're expecting to hear the stuff they've heard on the records. And the band sounds just like the records, but what's with this singer? He doesn't sound like anything that's been put out under the Joe Perry project name. So that was a trial by fire for me. It lasted for a really long time. Finally, we're out. We're touring with my album. We're getting, and with the album comes all this press. We're in, finally, we're in Circus Magazine and Cream and, and the places where rock bands are supposed to be written about because we've kind of been off the radar with, with no record deal or anything. All this year. And, and then we're ready to do what you were just saying, to do Europe and go to Japan, and everything's going our way. And that's when we got called into the office. <laughs> the, so. well, I got called into the office, but our manager's office. And when I, re- when I got to the office, two of the other guys, the bass player Danny Hargrove and the drummer Joe Pett, met me in the, in the uh, waiting room. And I was like, hmm, this is weird. I didn't expect it to be a band meeting. Mm-mm. Everybody was there except for Joe Perry. 
Yeah, we as went as soon as the, you got Joe looking good and all cleaned up. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you. And and he had a really good manager now, and he had a really good crew. Yeah, it was a really um, – all they had to do was kind of get rid of these – get rid of the Cowboy Mock Bell and, and Danny Hargrove, and uh, and that's kind of what happened. Joe was ready to go – so they're yeah, back in the Eric. saddle again, and you, you, the cowboy, are without a horse. Right on, man. Back to public transportation. And that yeah. leads me to this question, because I asked you the other day when I talked to you, and I said, Let, let's save it. Where'd the moniker cowboy mock bell come from? Oh, <laughs> it's going to be an anticlimax after all that drama. Ah. When I was a... <laughs> all right, all right, Hal from Philly, you asked, when I was... When I was a little kid, like really little, my word for P was beeps. I have to do beeps. And if I was outdoors and didn't want to go in the house and wanted to do beeps like the cowboys, I would you know, go behind a bush or the rocks and I'd do cowboy beeps. Anyway, so this was something I had when I was a little kid doing my mother, you know, where's Mark? Oh, he's out back doing cowboy beeps. So... Years later, when I was with Thunder Train, a whole bunch of road warriors uh, who, for one reason or another, weren't going home to Thanksgiving with their families, got together at this house in Lexington, Mass., for a big Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, there was a really long. There was only one bath. There was only one bathroom. There was a really long line for the bathroom. So I went up the first landing of the stairs and I started opening up a, a window. I was going to jump out the window and. Uh, Doc, who was one of the guys who owned the house, comes over. What the hell are you doing? And I said, I'm just going to go out and do some cowboy peeps. <laughs> and he said, what? <laughs> so I explained what I just did to you. Right. He started, cowboy peeps? Peeps is doing it like the cowboys. Okay, so he, he got a good <laughs> laugh at it. And then flash forward five years, after I uh, did that audition with Joe Perry, uh-huh. I had no idea that around the corner comes this big bearded guy. What are you doing here, cowboy? I said, huh? What are you doing here, Doc? He said, didn't anybody tell you? I'm the road manager on this show. And Uh, Joe Perry sticks up his head, which he didn't do very often. Right. (laughs) Cowboy? (laughs) Did you call him cowboy? Yeah, the cowboys do it like the cowboy. And from that moment on, Joe always called me cowboy. Not not an anticlimax. That's very funny. That's a great story. You know, just, and you just made me think of something too. Cowboy beeps, like they do it behind a bush. But I just had this vision, like suppose like a cowboy's like doing his beeps behind a tumbleweed, <laughs> and it just blows away. <laughs> no, the cowboys are too smart to do that. The tumbling tumbleweeds, no, no. <laughs> That's another. Song. Well, you don't realize it, like you know, you're groggy in the morning. You haven't had your bad coffee. Yeah, and there's just a bush you peanut, and you don't realize it's a tumbleweed, and all of a sudden it's gone. <laughs> you left there hanging. <laughs> this is just the way I think. Okay, I'm sorry. I just uh, no, I like I like it. Uh, yeah, this bro, it it fits. Thanks for a good yeah, visual. Yeah. So when they do Blazing Saddles too, that scene will have to be included. <laughs> yeah, it would fit. It would fit, and it'd be a it'd be a highlight. Yeah, so that's that's the the story of how I became cowboy, but and that. Once Joe called me that, it ended up being on the back of the, the big MCA record we did, Cowboy Mock Bell. So, so I stuck with it, you know. And I, I, it's my pen name 
for my book. It's what says at the top of the book, Cowboy Mark Bell. So yeah, because I kept, you, you know, yeah, because I kept looking on online, like. I would Google Mock Bell or Cowboy Mock Bell, and then you know you have the option for images. So I click on images, and I'm like, "There's not a single image of Mock Bell wearing a cowboy hat. Why do they call him Cowboy? I had to know." <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. No, no, it has nothing to. I'm not like Don Imus with the cowboy hat on Roy <laughs> Rogers or any of nothing. No horse. I, I did. Uh, I plead guilty. I did wear cowboy boots, but that was more because I'm a short guy, and I was always trying to get a couple of inches right. on the, well, ru- the rest are of the cool guys. Too, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So. So now uh, uh, we've been talking a while, so I, I guess I, it's it's okay to ask you uh, if you have any shameless self promotion. Work. What are you working on now? Or you want to talk about the book or the stuff you left out that you haven't talked about? They have to get the book to. to, to <laughs> It's 333 pages of Road Warrior Tales. It's, you don't have to be a, an Aerosmith or Joe Perry or rock fan, really, to, to dig it. it. It's just, it's about, you know, I visited just about every town in the United States, it seems. Everybody I meet goes, I couldn't believe, you know, you mentioned the town where my parents got together and got married. or We got around, and uh, after all these years, I, I looked at the the diaries, and I said, you know, it's time to... It was actually a podcaster, a guy out in San Francisco after uh, an interview. He said, you know, you really should publish those diaries. And uh, and then his the, the kids listened to his show. I always call them kids. The kids like like Hal from Philly's age. You're right, uh, us old kids. Okay. <laughs> the kids all, we're you know, just we're just older children, me. that's all. <laughs> Cowboy, yeah, release the diary, you know. And, and I... I I was never really a big fan of your music or anything, but I listened to you talk, and I'd like to hear more of what went down. So, yeah, so this last year I spent, well, 2019, I really hunkered down for the whole summer and uh, manuscripted it all out and managed to get it into printable form. And uh, I've got it out on Amazon. I'm exclusive with them right now. Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, A Diary uh, is the name. There is one other once a rocker, always a rocker book on Amazon, but you know, be careful, don't get that one. That's the name of the album we did too. And it's a song I you know, I wrote the lyrics to our songs. And what really burns me is that guy that used the name of my book. It's a book about Joe Perry that he wrote, but he mentions he said, Joe did some great music, but he also did this uh, once a rocker, always a rocker that I'm not particularly fond of. I'm <laughs> like, dude, I'm nice thinking, guy. why'd you write, why'd you name your book after my song title if you're not even particularly fond of it? But I, I'm about to go wider and and, and get into um, like Barnes and Noble and all that stuff. The, the brick and mortar stores. Yeah, I'm not sure if how brick and mortar it will go, Hal, because it's a real niche book. Let's face it, the road warriors out there are buying it, but. You know, it's not like a Dolly Parton book or a, you know, a Kardashian book. I, I don't expect a lot of people, the brick and mortars, to to want to p- put a pile of cowboy mock pal books out. Like, Who the heck is this? Well, they do that have a rock my... section. I discovered a kind of some cool books in their rock section. So they, they, there's a place yeah. for it in Barnes and Noble. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll at least be on their dot com. And yeah, if somebody, uh, if if somebody who who buys books in that particular store is a fan of Aerosmith or Cowboy Mock Bell for some reason. Um, maybe maybe it'll end up in the stores too. Anyway, these days, it's easy enough to find anything you, you want, especially if you're, you're a music fan. We all know how to go digging, Google it, and there it is. But uh, there it is. Yeah, it's been a 
it's been a super trip writing this thing and now kind of getting out on the road and, and promoting it. It's kind of like bringing the whole life back to the the project again. It's, it's well, really get exciting. It, if you get into the, the brick and mortar stores, you'll be able to actually do a book tour. You bring your like, yeah. acoustic with you and do some, you know, some stuff. Yeah, well, I'm not letting that stop me. I, I'm, I just signed a thing today to, to go up to Portland, Maine and do a signing, at, like be the MC at a rock show and then sit over the side and sign some books. Yeah, are you, so still, are you still writing and recording these days? Well, that was the book was my big thing last summer. And then my regular gig is uh, at Maycomber Center in Framingham, Mass. I work with kids. I've been working with kids for the last 20, 25 years, running a music room uh, where uh, I've got all the gear set up. It's a nice, you know, I set up a nice music room where, you know, Stevie Wonder and his band could come in and feel totally at home. And I let little kids from age five on up to 18 come in. and Sort of a school you know, just, of rock kind of uh, yeah. setup? Yeah, exactly. Except I don't make them all back me up on ACDC tunes like Jack Black did. I, if they want, I'll come in and I'll play drums or bass or sing or whatever they want me to do. But more, I facilitate... You know, I help kids out getting started, and then it doesn't take long. You know, once they learn uh, Stepping Stone or, or the yeah. chords to whatever Taylor Swift song they like, you know, then it's well, like let me out ask of the you way. Do you do you ha- do you have uh, some some uh, rockers pass through there? The the company special guests that get the kids uh, ins- inspired. I I wish kids were more interested in that. It in my experience. Virtually none of these kids have any interest at all when I mention that I was in a band or that I have any background in music. They're like, don't even bore us with that. I I had uh, one of the parents brought in some books of mine to sign that she was giving them out for Christmas presents. And and this 13-year-old girl says, what's that? And I said, oh, it's a book I wrote. And she said, once a rocker? You were a rocker? I said, yeah. She said, well, what did you do? I said, well... First off, did you ever hear of Aerosmith? And she said, "No." So I was like, "I'm not even, gonna, I'm not even going to try to impress these kids." More, what I try to do is just set it up, uh, open up the door, and let them get themselves. As, as uh, James Brown said, "I've got a lot of musical friends who say I'd love to come down and like show the kids the rudiments on the drums or, or do something." I've got this. Luckily, I've got the an amazing. A uh, guy on staff, Dan, who plays every instrument and sings, and he and I, you know, any chance we get, we strap on the guitars and start doing birds tunes and Beatles and Stones and you know whatever. I should mention, just in defense of these innocent kids that I do work with, a lot of them when they get to be twenty three, twenty five, whatever, they do get back in touch with me and they thank me for what I I did with them, and they and all of a sudden they realize that I did have some credentials out there and, and that I was, you know, very giving uh, of my time with the kids and, and, and played in their bands. They had no idea they were playing with somebody that worked with, with some of the people I've worked with over the years. So, but when they're at that younger age, they haven't put all that kind of thing together. Yeah. When they get older and they Google you and they go, wait a minute, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, now if they Google me, all they do is laugh and say, ah, oh, you look ridiculous. You must be so embarrassed that you were in a band. And I said, well, not as, 
no, I'm not embarrassed, but never mind. Uh, let's talk about something else. But then they get older and they go, oh, okay. Now, so now have I'm any of your kids gone on to become uh, uh, players in any bands that are, are known now? I don't think anybody has instant name recognition. And that's another reason why they start to appreciate me more when they get older. They realize it's not that easy to end up in a Joe Perry project situation. Right. Some of them have gone on to tour around and play. I've had some that had success on, on Broadway as dancers and uh, more background people, you know, and got to play on a lot of the famous shows, but, but not as the stars. Um, but yeah, so far I don't have that person, but, I've had so many kids go through the music room. I'm definitely hoping that one of them will be the uh, next Stevie Wonder so I can lay claims that I set them on their road to uh, to glory. There you go. Yeah, I mean, that's, all, <laughs> that's all it takes, just one to validate what you've done. And, you know, the fact that any of them are getting a paycheck, even if it's on Broadway, you know. You, you, oh, you yeah. did your job. No, you did a good no, job. That's very, huh? yeah. These places I work, it's not like Juilliard or, or uh, Berkeley School of Music where we're uh, saying we're a, a music academy that's going to set your kid up. We're much more of a general educational resource place, and it just happens that one of the staff members, me, has this interest in uh, rock and roll and, and music in general. So I uh, go overboard on the music end of things, and, and people dig it. And I, and I produce a couple shows a year. So kids get to play, and uh, so even if they never go on to play anywhere else, at least they get to play in a Mock Bell production show. And everybody and they, wins. Everybody's happy. <laughs> oh, let me just say, oncearocker.com. Oncearocker.com. Yeah, oncearocker.com. If anybody is uh, interested in any of this stuff, uh, you can contact me there. You can get the book through there. You can get my old Thunder Train records. And, oh, and you know, also, your, a, uh, there's quite a few YouTube videos that you're in. So, uh, oh, you, yeah. Do you have I mean, a favorite? Do, a lot of the ones I like the most are the old Thunder Train ones. If you if you find those, because they're just so they're just so exciting. Well, it's great talking to you, Cowboy Mockbell. And you uh, too, Hal. We'll stay in touch. Good man. Let's do that. Over and out. Cowboy Mock Bell. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And I want to remind you to go to my website, talesoftheroadwarriors.com, and subscribe to the podcast. Hit one of the links to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, wherever, whatever app you usually use to listen to podcasts. Hit the subscribe button there so you can always be notified when I drop a new episode. I try to do it every Thursday. Doesn't always turn out that way because of my lifestyle. I am a musician after all. So once in a while, gigs come up and kind of pushes my release date back a little bit sometimes. I'm the chief cook and bottle washer here, so doing the best I can. Also, you can uh, hit the button to uh, take you to my PayPal account where you can contribute a buck, two bucks. A one-time contribution every once in a while would really help me out a lot. I got a trip planned for California in May where I'm going to have a reunion with all those singing waiters I talk about sometimes. So I haven't seen them in years. You'll find a link to uh, Mock Bell's website where you can get a copy of his book, Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, A Diary, because there's a lot of stories in his book that we did not talk about. So if you're curious and want to uh, get a little bit more in depth in uh, Mock Bell's journal, there you go. 
So that's it. I'm going for a drive. Yeah.